All right, well, good morning, Grace Hill. Good morning, good morning. You can find your seat. Man, this feels good. Feels good to see all of you in one room. Um, wow, this is so encouraging. I think uh, I was just looking at some of our staff and leaders, and everyone's got a smile on their face because we have been praying for this day, this day where we could come back together on a Sunday morning um, and just be, yes, thank you, thank yes. This is, this is fantastic. Hey, I'm gonna do something really unique. Um, so if you're brand new with us, um, just bear with us just for one moment. Um, but I really just wanna take a minute. We're gonna record a little video together, all right? That's what we're gonna do. Um, I wanna take just a quick minute and thank Cedar Run Community Church uh, for their generosity towards us as a church. They offered their facility to us on Sunday afternoons completely free of charge uh, for several months just to give us a space to be able to meet together uh, on Sundays. Yeah, it was in the afternoon and we didn't really like afternoon, but that was such a great thing for them to do for us. So here's what I'm gonna do. This camera right there, I'm gonna say a few words to Cedar Run and then uh, we're recording and then Justin's gonna zoom back and I'm gonna say on three, we're all going to say thank you, Cedar Run, all right? Now, this has got to be good the first round, all right? I'm not going to say, you know, because that just doesn't look good if everyone's like, thank you, Cedar Run. All right, so it just, you know, let's make this good the first time around. All right, can we do that? Is that cool? So when I say one, two, three, go, say that, and you're going to look at that camera where Justin is. Justin, wave your hand. Or Nick, wave your hand. Somebody, there you go. All right, all right. All right, so Justin, tell me when you're ready. I'll say a few words, and we'll all say thank you. We're ready. All right. Hey, Cedar Run Community Church, Pastor David, we as a church body just wanted to say thank you for your generosity and your hospitality towards us as a church. What you guys have done for us, I think, is just the epitome of the kind of unity that Christ requires of his church. You guys have been an example, not only to us, but to the body of Christ in general. You are so great to work with, and wow, we're just so grateful to you that you gave us a space to meet. So we all wanted to say thank you. All right, so all of us together, we're gonna say thank you, Cedar Run, on three. One, two, three. Thank you, Cedar Run. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much for doing that with us. We're gonna send that over to them. And so hopefully that is uh, just an encouragement to their church body. They really were so fantastic. Their pastor, David Morris, was great to work with their whole staff. So we're just so grateful uh, for them. All right, hey, thanks so much for being here today. If you are new, my name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Hill. I'd love to be able to meet you after the service. There'll be plenty of time for that, so please, uh, let's make sure we get introduced to each other um, in the lobby afterwards. But before we jump in uh, to God's word this morning, I'm going to invite Debbie to come on up, and she is going to kick us off by reading the scripture and opening us in prayer. Thanks, Debbie. Good morning. We're going to read from Matthew 20, 20 through 28. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, 
came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus answered by saying to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied, we are able. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from, the bitter, from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the, ten other disciples, when the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, You know what the rulers of this world, you know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Dear God, I just first want to say thank you so much for just this opportunity to be together this morning. It feels more normal. It feels, it just feels so great to be together, to sing worship, to praise your name, to hear from your word, to just be together as the body of Christ. And we see in your word what you did for us, that you came to serve and to lay your life down. And so we just pray as we move into hearing from your word that we would see what you have done and the example that was set and how we can serve others, you know, in the way that you served first. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Debbie, for opening our time in prayer. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Um, if you are new with us, we um, have been studying through the Gospel of Luke for some time. I believe we're on part 33, um, and we're not even halfway through. Um, so we'll see how long this takes us to get through it. But the Gospel of Luke is a history of the life and teachings of Jesus, and we've been studying that uh, together. So we'll be in Luke chapter 9 if you want to get that out. If you want to get that pulled up on your phone, totally fine with us. We're also going to have the verses on the screen uh, behind me. You know, over the last year or so, really dating back before um, the pandemic hit, uh, one of the things that our staff and our elders and our leaders have been doing is doing some what we've been calling strategic planning for our church. Just saying, hey, we're about to turn four years old as a church. We're a new church. But now that we're established, we're just praying through, God, what is the vision that you have for us over the next five years? And we really want to get clear on that. And so we've been asking those questions. And other questions we've been asking has been, through this pandemic, God, what are you teaching us through this pandemic? You, you made it very difficult for the church to gather on Sundays and for a, a, almost a year. And so, God, what are you trying to teach us? What can we learn from this experience? And so our leaders have been in this process, praying through those questions, asking those questions. And we're actually really uh, excited to, in September, um, this fall to really lead our whole church through uh, that process as well. But the reason why I bring that up is because uh, one of the questions we've been asking through this process is, God, what kind of culture do you want us to have here at Grace Hill Church? What are the values that you want us to have 
as a church. And as we've been praying through this, here's one of the values that we've been talking about a lot, and it's been coming up in, in multiple conversations, and that's this. It says, I think I'll have it on the screen for you. It's this value that, that we as a church, we want to be more known by what we're for than what we're against. That as a church, we want to be talking about and we want to be known more by what we're for rather than what we're against. Right? We, you know, we all know that we live today in a very polarized culture. And it feels like, this is probably hyperbolic, but it feels like that most people, most organizations, most causes today, that they communicate, they express themselves more by what they're against versus what they're for. And I think this reality has kind of crept itself into the church, Big C Church, Universal Church, where I think if you were to ask the average person who, who doesn't believe in Jesus, you know, they wouldn't consider themselves a Christian or go to church or anything like that. I think if you were to interview them and ask, hey, make a list for me. What are the things that the church is for? And what are the things that the church is against? And, and I get the feeling, I think most people who don't attend church or believe in Jesus would have more things to put in the against category. You know, so I, as I said, we, we've been studying through Luke. And so we're in Luke chapter 9. And, and today we're going to cover a good chunk of text. And we're going to cover several encounters that Jesus has with his disciples. And one of the things that we're going to see is that these encounters between Jesus and his disciples um, are, are pretty frustrating for Jesus. I think we're going to see some of Jesus' frustration a bit come out with his disciples because... I think Jesus is seeing this very culture, this very problem, even within his disciples. Um, you know, one of the key characteristics of being in a fallen world, right, a world that is ravaged by sin and rebellion against God, is whenever we as human beings, and this is a, a tendency we have, right, this is a temptation we have, Whenever we as human beings discover something that is great, or, or maybe we become convinced of something, or we become very passionate about something, or maybe we come into possession of something that we think is really amazing, one of the tendencies that we have is we want to use that thing to make us look great to other people, right? And we believe that greatness is achieved through being better than others. And so we look to this thing that we might have, and, and we say, because I have this, because I'm convinced of this, because this is my belief, that makes me better than you. And it's how our culture operates today. It's what's making everything so polarized today, right? I have this particular political belief or ideology or conviction, right? And so... Most people are expressing that through how everybody else's conviction or ideology that's different is bad, right? This makes me better than you. So many examples that we could run through in our culture of this, but where I want to focus today 
is how this reality, it's so subtle, it's so insidious, this desire to be great, to be compared to other people, that it even infiltrated the disciples and their relationship with Jesus. That, that the disciples themselves were taking this relationship they had with the Messiah, the fact that Jesus was walking around and picked them to be his disciples, the fact that they were seeing all of these miracles and they had the message of the gospel of the kingdom on their lips. They were taking that very reality and they were now using it to make them look great, them look superior to other people around them. And Jesus was not having a bit of it. So if you remember, Luke 9, a couple of weeks ago, we started the chapter, and Jesus takes his disciples, and he's like, okay, I've been teaching you for a while, been training you for a while, it's your turn, I'm gonna send you out, and you're gonna go to the villages and the towns, and you're gonna preach the gospel of the kingdom, and you're going to heal people. I'm gonna give you the power to heal people. I'm gonna give you the power to cast out demons. And so his disciples go out and they're healing people, casting out demons, they're preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And I think one of the things that happens is it got to their head a little bit. And they really liked the reaction they got from people when they would heal someone and everyone looked at them in awe. Until one day, they try to do it and it doesn't work. And that kicks off this section of scripture that we're going to study this morning in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus has to deal with this motivation inside of the disciples. All right, let's, let's read it. We're going to just read the first part of it, Luke 9. I'm going to start in verse 37. So verse 37 says this, on the next day when the disciples had come down from the mountain. So remember, Nick preached on this last week. They were up on this mountain and they saw the transfiguration of Jesus. So this amazing, glorious, miraculous event. So they're coming down. A great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child. And, and behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. Look at this, verse 40. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, can he feel the sigh in this? Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be here and bear with you? Whew. Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. And while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, here's his response. Let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about what he was saying. All right, let's just stop there for a second. We're gonna read a little bit more in a minute, but I have two questions from the text. 
So the first question that I have for us as we read this is how come the disciples couldn't cast out the demon? Because Jesus had given them the authority and power to do so. So what was going on there? And my second question that I have of what we just read is why does Jesus, in response to this, tell his disciples, hey, I'm about to be delivered into the hands of men, which meant I'm about to be arrested, tried, and hung on the cross, executed. This is about to happen to me, Jesus, the Messiah. Why was that Jesus' response to his disciples? You know, if you look at verse 41, this is this lament that Jesus has when the disciples couldn't cast out the demon and somebody else came to Jesus to, to get him to do it. In verse 41, it, it's, Jesus says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be here with you? you, you if it's possible, we got to get ourselves in Jesus' shoes here a little bit. Uh, think about this. Jesus existed eternity past, son of God, All right? He, he was in heaven with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, right, with the Trinity. Uh, so, and now he's here in the broken world. So just imagine for a second if you lived in a society, all right, a neighborhood, a city, and everybody in that city, 100% of them, every one of them was courteous, every one of them put others before themselves, Every one of them was just kind and would help each other, sacrifice for one another. That was the society you lived in. And I just plucked you out of it and dropped you in a society where no one does that. Everyone puts themselves before others, right? No one is courteous. I think that's what Jesus is feeling. He's in a broken world. And that's not what he's used to. And so he laments this, but he knows why he's here. And he's going to get there for a second but he laments the fact that his disciples, something had happened to their motivations. He says, he calls their motivations, I think here, twisted. And the reason why I think he's calling their motivations twisted is because of what we're about to read. These three other encounters that Jesus is going to have with his disciples where he has to correct what's going on inside of their heart. His disciples were using their calling from God, the abilities that God has given them, the message that God had given them to make themselves look great and not God. Uh, in Mark chapter 8, another gospel, uh, this same event is recorded. And in verses 28 and 29, Mark gives us a little more information than Luke. In verses 28 and 29, the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, how come we couldn't do it? And Jesus says, because this kind requires prayer. It's not you who does it. It's not you that has the power, right? It is God the Father. And I think in this instant, right, the disciples had forgotten that. Things got to their head a little bit. And so here's what Jesus says in verse 44, right? He says to them, let this sink into your ears. The son of man, me, Jesus, I'm about to be delivered into the hands of men. In other words, this isn't about power. This message that I have isn't about lording things over people. This ability that I've given you to heal and to cast out demons, it's not about making you great before men. 
This is all about serving people, right? I, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus, I myself am about to go lay my life down for these people. This is the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is that we serve a God who visited us not to condemn us, but to lay his life down for us. That he was a servant. That's how he led us. It's what Debbie just read for us out of Matthew chapter 20. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here's the deal. Jesus calls his people to follow him in that. That's how we follow Jesus. By laying our lives down as Jesus has laid his life life down, right? Knowledge of God, knowledge of Jesus, knowledge of the scriptures doesn't make us better than our neighbors. Knowledge of God and knowledge of the scriptures doesn't make us opposed or against our neighbors. Actually, it compels us to love and serve our neighbors. And so as we continue in Luke 9, we're going to hit these three different encounters where the disciples, they don't get it yet. And what I think we get from the text this morning is this, that we're going to get three warning signs, three warning signs that we, too, might be feeling the temptation to, for our motives to be twisted up a little bit when it comes to how we approach our faith. Are we using the things of God, our calling from God, our faith to make us great, or are we using it? to lay down our lives for our neighbors as Jesus has called us to do it. Three warning signs that our faith may be twisted up a bit. And just before we jump into it, I just wanna say, I, I believe this conversation is so critical because I really do believe the reputation of the church in our culture, the way our culture is going is at stake. I can't tell you how many times I talk to people who don't believe in Jesus. They don't even want to consider Jesus because as they see the church, or at least how the church is betrayed, which we can't really control, but as they see the church, they see a bunch of people who seem to be just opposed to everyone, trying to lord over everyone, people who try to condemn their neighbors, when I talk to people who grew up in the faith and have decided to walk away from the faith, statistics are showing that that is happening more and more and more again. This is what they cite. They say, I grew up in the church and then I realized all of these people are using their faith just to make themselves look great. It's not about serving and loving their neighbors and following Jesus and doing the things that he did. So I think it's so important that we have humility and we go, okay, God, what are the warning signs that this could be happening in us? Because guys, if it can happen to James and Peter and John, it can happen to us. So three warning signs. Here's the first one. Warning sign number one is this. Warning sign number one that our faith might be getting twisted up, our motivations twisted up, is this, that there are people that we don't believe are worth our time. There are people in our life or around us that we don't believe are worth our time. They don't believe, we don't believe they're worth serving. Let's read this in the text, uh, Luke 9, verses 46 to 48. It says this, an argument arose among them, the disciples, right? 
This is just right after this incident, by the way. As which of them was the greatest? Could you imagine like being Jesus in that moment? Right? You just have this moment of correction. You're just trying to teach them. You're bringing them along. And all of a sudden, they start arguing about who's the best. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child, put him by his side, and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, the Father. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. You know, what I imagine the disciples, when they're arguing about who's the greatest, what what I think is going on, and I could be wrong because the text doesn't specify it, but what I think is going on is I think they're arguing over the prominence of the people that they reached. You know, like, I think the argument's like, oh, man, when I went out, I got, you know, I would talk to a Roman centurion and healed his son, and, man, he was, like, blown away, and then I told him the gospel of the kingdom, and, oh, this guy, like, oh, I got this rich guy, or whatever. I think they were arguing or maybe comparing their ministry in that way. I could be wrong, but the reason why I think that is because Jesus takes a child, a vulnerable child that maybe they wouldn't think would be very significant, if they were able to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to just this child. He says, this child is just as significant and worth your time as as anybody else. You know, I'll never forget, um, this was years ago now, maybe, maybe seven or eight years ago, I was pastoring at a church in Fairfax, Virginia. I was an associate pastor. And we had this one service Service was going on, and this woman came in and sat in the congregation. And she was clearly homeless. Um, and there were a few different moments where she disrupted the service by asking for prayer or crying or wailing and things like that. And at the end of the service, our lead pastor, Justin, was up, up front, and he was giving the benediction for the service. And while he was closing the service out, this woman came up front, like rushed up front, demanding that the church pray for her. I was sitting in the back of the congregation, and I was annoyed that this woman would do this. And I watched our lead pastor, Justin, I I watched him so gently and caringly serve her and hear her, lay hands on her and pray for her and have the church pray for her and just dealt with it so well. And I'm standing in the back just with my heart in this spot where I, I, I thought she was disrupting the service. Why, you know, if she want prayer, you know, do it after the service, right? And the Lord, as I watched uh, Justin care for her so well, the Lord just convicted my heart. I mean, I'd probably something what these disciples felt in the moment. Convicting me of my prejudice, convicting me of my annoyance, convicting me that there's certain people who aren't worth my time or my ministry, or to stop and to serve and to love. I think that was a warning sign that something was going on in my heart. My motives were a bit twisted up. And the reality is God values the dignity of every human being. Every single one of them deserve the church's time and attention for them to hear the gospel of the kingdom because the scripture is so clear that he desires all to be saved. And imagine if the church had that reputation. 
Yeah, the church, I don't know about what they believe, but I'll tell you what, they love everyone. They want everyone to hear their message. And they value the dignity of everyone. It doesn't matter their status or who they are. And you know, before I move to the second warning sign, I just have to mention, like as I, as I read this text, I'm just, I'm so grateful for our volunteers on the other side of that wall and, and over there as well, who are right now missing our first Sunday morning service and forever to love and serve our kiddos and to receive them and to disciple them and teach them the word of God. And, and I'll just say, I, I, you know, one of the things that as a church right now we're struggling with a bit is getting the volunteers we need for that. And I get it, it's hard on Sunday morning and you miss service and we've heard people say, I just don't wanna do that on my Sunday and I just, I want you to see Jesus' heart here that they are worth Every one of us, they are worth our time to give them focused attention, to teach them God's word, and to disciple our next generation. And so I just, if, if that's you, we need help loving and serving these kiddos. And I just encourage you to pray about if God's asking you to do that, maybe that's a warning sign right there. Every single person's worth our time. That's warning sign number one. Here's warning sign number two is that we spend more time opposing one another than loving our neighbors. If we go into our text, verse 49, our next encounter, it says this, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, don't stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Jesus, he's probably like, Ugh. like, come on, guys, let's go, right? Why are the disciples threatened by this other guy who's clearly doing good work? He's casting out demons in the name of Jesus. So he's not leading them astray. You know, how did this guy get the ability to do it? We don't know. Jesus knows, but we don't know. So why are the disciples threatened by this other person, right? This is challenging to me as a pastor. Um, I, I uh, you know, this church is four years old. We planted this church, you know, in 2017. And of course, as the lead pastor here, I, I want our church to grow. And of course, I want people to choose our church, right? And I got to struggle in my own heart, this kind of territorialness, if that's a word, where it's like, you know, I want our church to, I want people to choose us and not other churches. And it's like, what's, what's going on in my heart that is making me desire that? I think it's the same thing, right? For all of church history, the church has been bogged down with infighting and territorialness and all of this where everyone wants to be the person that everyone follows, and so unity is hard because we're constantly doing this. If you go on social media today, I mean, it, the, the amount of time that Christians spend lobbing grenades at each other is, it's really disheartening. But this can go on inside of a local church as well, just like us at Grace Hill, where we can get bogged down with fighting through, you know, how worship things. We've never had that really issue here, praise God, but, or other things. I know lots of churches that, you know, just COVID protocols became a massive contentious issue for them or politics or whatever it is. There's lots of things we can fight each other on. And I think it's a warning sign if we're spending more time doing that 
then loving or serving our neighbors, unifying together to do the things that Jesus has called us to do. Like imagine if the church at large repurposed its energy from lobbing all those grenades to loving and serving and reaching those who don't know Christ. And I think that's Jesus' desire for the church. So warning sign one, there are people that we don't believe are worth our time. Warning sign two, we spend more time opposing one another than loving our neighbors. Warning sign three is we have instincts of judgment over instincts of redemption. We continue in our text, verse 51. Man, this one's the worst of them all. When the days draw near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Real quick, I just want to mark. This is a clear marker in Luke, right? That Jesus has now set his face for Jerusalem, meaning he is headed to the cross. And Jesus, um, sorry, verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. I'll explain that in a second. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And and I just love verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. You know what I mean? It's just very quick. Like, what? No, what? And they went on to another village. All right, what's going on here? So, the reality is the Samaritans, all right, were a group of people generations before this, right, they intermarried with Jews. And so the Jews kind of saw the Samaritans as half-breeds, all right? And so there's a lot of ethnic tension between these groups. But the Samaritans also had some different doctrine. One of the key pieces of doctrinal differences was they didn't believe that the temple should be located in Jerusalem. They believed it should be located at Mount Gerizim, right? A different place. The tension was so high, right? Like, so you have Galilee in northern Israel. Then the area of Samaria was right south of that. And then Jerusalem, Judea, was south of that. And so this people who lived in Galilee who were making the trek down to Jerusalem for a pilgrimage would rarely go through Samaria. They would go around Samaria. Jesus didn't like that. He just went straight on through every single time. And he had several encounters with Samaritans um, that you can read in the Gospels. So this is one of those. And so when it says that the Samaritans didn't house Jesus, they weren't hospitable to Jesus because they were offended that he was going to Jerusalem to worship and not to where they think the temple should be. All right, That's that whole thing going on there. right? But the disciples were also offended that the Samaritans were offended, and they go straight to judgment. Their instinct is judgment. I don't know what had gotten into their minds. Maybe they just, you know, hey, we can cast out demons. We can heal people's diseases. Maybe we can look to the sky and cause fire to fall down. At some point, they got the idea that God would listen to them in that. But I want us to see that their instinct was judgment. And it does make me think about the church. As the church, we believe the scriptures, and the scriptures give us very clear instructions from God about the way that we ought to live, about what is moral and what is not moral, right? And, And there are many things that our culture and our world disagrees with when it comes to scripture and the Bible. 
And I think the church has built a reputation of that makes us really angry. We're, we're, it makes us angry at our culture around us that they would disagree with what this says. And it's hard, no doubt, it's hard the fact that our culture opposes what we believe about a whole lot of things. But I think what happens inside of our hearts is we go, no, 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 you don't get it. We're better than you. And yes, we have God's word, right? This is a better way. But I think sometimes what we do is we use it to make us look great. We have instincts of judgment against our culture versus instincts of redemption, right? A heart of judgment is not going to be motivated to love and serve. And Jesus says in John 3, 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. When we encounter the world around us, do we long for redemption? change, transformation, grace, mercy? Or do we long for judgment? Because one of those is gonna lead us towards loving and serving and proclaiming with our lips what we believe and the other is not. You know, um, many of you know that my wife and I, we serve as foster care parents for Fairfax County. And through our years of doing this, I've spent a lot of time with parents who have had their children taken from them, parents who've had their rights terminated to parent their children because they have either abused or neglected their child. And in those moments, it is really easy to have a heart of judgment, right? Because I compare them to me. I go, well, I'm a pretty good parent, right? I'm present with my kids. I provide for them. You know, I'm gentle with them. I play with them, all of those things. So it's really easy to have this heart of judgment, against parents who have, who have done some hard, bad, bad things. Until you begin to learn these parents' stories and you realize, oh, well, you grew up in a home where you were beaten. It's amazing to me how many parents I have met whom I, their child is in my house as their foster parent and I learned that they grew up in foster care. Right, the cycle, it's, it's, it's always blown me away how, how common that really is. And what I have found is as I've learned these parents' stories, my heart, my instincts of judgment begins to change to instincts and a heart of redemption. Where I long for these parents to have a better way. And I long for these parents to know that there is a God who has not given up on them and that they can change and that they don't have to perpetuate the cycle. This is the kind of heart that I think God desires for us to have as the church to our neighbors and to our society, that we wouldn't long for judgment for them, we would long for redemption. And I think when we have instincts of judgment, it becomes a warning sign that we've taken our faith and the motives have gotten twisted up and it's turned more about us being great and less about God being great. So three warning signs, right? First one is, man, there's people that we just don't think are worth our time. That's a warning sign that something's getting twisted up in our faith. The second one, that we spend more time opposing one another than loving our neighbors. That's a warning sign. Something's getting twisted up. And the last one is when we have instincts of judgment rather than redemption. And church, think about how much more effective we would be 
in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a hard message, by the way, because it's a message that says you are, you are a sinner who has rebelled against a holy God and you are under the wrath of God. That is a hard message, but this God has visited us in and through his son Jesus to save us. How much more effective would we be in proclaiming that message if we took our faith and we said, Jesus, this is all about you? How much more effective would we be if we are more known by what we're for rather than what we're against? And that's my prayer for our church as we move forward, as we come out of COVID and we serve and love our community, that this is what we would be known for. Let me pray for us. God, as we study Luke 9, I admit that it's a, it's a hard passage. And, and Lord, I know I'm up here and I'm, I'm kind of making, a bit of, making fun of the disciples a bit and how they just weren't getting it. And Lord, I, as I've reflected on this passage and even thought of examples from my own life, I realize, God, I, there's so many times I don't get it either. There's so many times that I encounter a situation and I realize, wow, the motives of my faith have been twisted up a bit. And God, I'm so grateful for your grace and your mercy and kindness toward me that you lead me to repentance and you lead me towards change and you don't condemn me right then and there. Lord, even though the disciples didn't get it, you still entrusted them to start the church. And so God, we know that we're not done. But God, we pray, I pray for Grace Hill that we would be a church who has the humility and the self-awareness to, to look at our own lives and see, are these warning signs present? Are there ways in which we're using our faith for our own glory and our own greatness instead of yours? And God, would you lead us away from that so that, God, we can proclaim your name accurately. That as we proclaim the message of the gospel to our neighbors, as we love and serve our neighbors, we're, we're representing you in the way that you have called us to represent you. So in that light, God, we pray for our community. We pray for Herndon and we pray for Sterling and Reston and Loudon and Fairfax and all of these communities around us. And God, would you do a work through your church and bring many people to faith in Jesus. Would your church unify together to serve and love our neighbors in radical ways that's only explainable because we have been saved in and through Christ? Would you humble us, God? Would you unify us? Would you give us instincts of redemption? Because God, those are yours. And we pray you do a mighty work through us. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.